0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Last night was October 12th. 2016. And what a good night we had at GCA. A good midweek service. And then when it was over, I walked over to the recording device and noticed that I had forgotten to push the button. So nothing that happened last night recorded. I was crestfallen. I was chagrined. I was deeply upset with myself because it was a really good night. But what I decided to do was rather than go back up to the GCA building and re-record the same material, I decided to do it here at home and just talk to you all personally about the book of Zephaniah. Not a lot of preaching gets done about Zephaniah. Zephaniah is one of the prophets who was prophesying at the particular time that we have reached in our study of Second Kings, during the time of Josiah's reforms. This is around 620, 621 BC. Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah are all contemporaries that appear on the stage of history right about the same time. And so we've taken another quick break from our second Kings study in order to look at Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah. And last night, it was Zephaniah's turn. Now, Zephaniah is a short book. It's only three chapters, and we covered all three chapters last night, which is really good. One of the first things you're going to find out about Zephaniah is that he provides a time frame that Josiah was king in Jerusalem at the time, and he also gives us a four-generation genealogy that harkens back to Hezekiah. And so there's some indication that this Zephaniah was actually of royal descent. And his prophecy, again, like we saw in Nahum, his prophecy has one primary subject or one thing he's driving at, which is that God is a righteous God who will judge. And Zephaniah uses the phrase, day of the Lord, and that day and the day He uses it more than just about any other prophet in the Old Testament. He's going to talk about the day of the Lord, the day when God is going to not only wipe out all mankind from planet Earth, but he's also going to destroy the birds of the air. He's also going to destroy the fishes of the sea. So land, sea, and air, God's going to wipe out everything living on the planet through a conflagration, through fire. The first time that he killed all the beings on the planet, he used water. He brought about the flood. This time he's going to use fire. The first time in the flood, the fish were largely untouched. But this second time, the fire is going to destroy everyone. And this is the same thing that we read in the New Testament when we read Peter saying that God is going to destroy the whole earth with fire. So this is a consistent image of the eschatological end of the planet prior to the new heavens and the new earth. Now, another thing we're going to see in Zephaniah is that he's going to do what so many of the Old Testament prophets do. He starts out chapter 1 and ends chapter 1 by talking about the end of the world, the conflagration. The destruction of everyone on the planet. But in the middle of chapter one, he talks specifically about Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity to come. So I think what he's doing here is that he bookends the chapter, start and end, with God destroying the whole planet and every living thing on it. But then he uses Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem as a microcosm of that end-time event when God is going to destroy everyone. So he starts with God destroying everyone, and then he talks about Jerusalem falling under God's punishment, the destruction of Jerusalem, and then he closes again with God destroying the planet. And we're going to see again the incredible sovereignty of God that his reason for punishing the nations is because they mocked Israel when God was punishing Israel. So God is going to use the surrounding nations to punish Israel, and then he's going to punish the surrounding nations for punishing his people Israel. And the only way you can deal with that is to recognize that God is absolutely sovereign in what he does. And then the third chapter is going to continue that theme of destruction. And midway through the last chapter, suddenly Zephaniah does exactly what all the prophets of the Old Testament do. In fact, last night I said, What's the phrase I keep using? And everybody answered, The prophets speak with one voice. And that's true. The prophets all speak with one voice. They have one consistent message for Israel, which is God is angry with you, God is going to judge you, but God is not going to lose you. Zephaniah introduces us again to the remnant concept. And he talks about God keeping a remnant of Israel for himself because That's the promise. That's the Abrahamic covenant. There has to be a continuation of Israel. And so God is going to keep some people safe in the midst of all that punishment, in the midst of all the scattering. He's going to keep a remnant of Israel to himself in order to populate the kingdom to come, because the last half of Zephaniah 3 is about that very thing, that God is going to be faithful to Israel and that, in fact, God is going to dwell in their midst, and God is going to rule from Jerusalem. So, that's the large overview of Zephaniah, and we're just going to try to read it out, fill in a few blanks, and then I think you'll have some sense of what Zephaniah said and how he fits into the historic context of Israel's prophets. Now, the next thing I did last night in introducing the book of Zephaniah was again to kind of try to create a big picture view of what is happening around 600 BC. Josiah is king, the northern tribes have been taken into the Assyrian captivity, and it's only going to take about 200 more years for the Old Testament to be completed. A lot happens during that time. The Babylonian captivity, the Medo-Persians conquering Babylon, and then the Greeks coming in under Alexander the Great. Those kingdoms are all predicted in Daniel, but by the time we get to the Greek dominion, prior to even the Roman dominion coming on the scene, by the time we get to the Greeks... We've reached the book of Malachi, and then we've entered what's called the Intertestamental Period, 400 years during which God was silent. So God has his chosen elect people. God has his people Israel, who he's made an unconditional covenant with. God has entered into that covenant with those people and promised them a grand heritage, but for 400 years... He's not talking to them. He's left Israel in their scattered condition. Even though he's brought Judah back to Jerusalem, and even though the temple and the city walls are being rebuilt during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, after Cyrus the Persian has sent them back to Jerusalem, and even though there is this great fervor, this anticipation, this looking forward to the Messiah and to the kingdom to come, There's silence for 400 years where God simply does not send prophets to Israel. So there are some history books that are written during that period. There are, again, what are called the intertestamental books, which were often gathered with the Old Testament books but were not considered canonical because they were not written by or inspired by prophets to Israel. So my point in bringing that up is that it only takes 200 years from the point we're at now to reach the point of Malachi and the close of the Old Testament. And then there is 400 years of silence, and then Jesus breaks on the scene. First, there is a prophet, a an Old Testament-type prophet, John the Baptist. And then comes our prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. But that's after God has been quiet for four centuries. And yet, despite God's silence, no condition of Israel's choosing changed. The Abrahamic covenant was still in effect. The law of Moses was still in effect, for which God was punishing these people because they had broken that. But the Abrahamic covenant was ongoing And those people of Israel were continually in God's knowledge. They were continually in God's plans. And no part of their calling or election changed. That's the point of Romans 11. After Paul has said that after the fullness of the Gentiles are come in, then all Israel will be saved. And then he defines who all Israel is. He says, as touching the gospel... They are enemies for your sake. So these are not believers in Christ. But then Paul continues and says, But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's sake. They are beloved. They are the elect, even though they've been scattered, even though they've been punished, even though they've gone through all these captivities and difficulties. Still, God is promising them that they're going to rest safely, they're going to have safety from all their enemies, and that they're going to have a glorious kingdom. And that's all part of the promise. So, here's Israel, unbelieving Israel. They've been scattered. Judah is going into the Babylonian captivity. They're constantly having to keep the Assyrians away. And in fact, Zephaniah is going to talk about the Assyrians And despite all that, despite how bad it's getting for them and still is to this very day, no part of their calling or their election has changed because the calling of God is without repentance. He doesn't turn away from it. He called Israel. He chose Israel. He elected Israel. And now he's punishing Israel. And that's what Zephaniah is all about. God's going to punish Jerusalem, He's already punished Israel, but ultimately He's going to restore them. And if God can be silent for 400 years and still be in covenant with His people, we need to remember that in our lives when it seems like God is silent. And it makes us think, well, then where's God? In the midst of my troubles, in the midst of my pain, where's God? Why won't he communicate? Well, he's there, and he knows, and we have history of him being silent. So with that, let us start reading the book of Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi." son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Okay, so now we know exactly when Zephaniah was on the planet and we know when this prophecy came about. And then he jumps right in, without so much as a how you doing, he immediately says God is going to enter into Destruction. Verse 2 I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast, I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So land, sea, and air, birds, fish, Human beings, animals, God is going to destroy them all. In a chapter or two, we're going to see that He's going to do it with fire. So, having established that God is going to one day wipe out everybody, starting at verse 4, Zephaniah says, So I will stretch out my hand against Judah. So, Zephaniah is using the reality of God's destruction of all things. As a way of assuring Judah that this same God, who will eventually destroy everything, is going to punish Judah and doesn't have any fear of doing that. Doesn't have anything or anyone who can stop his hand or ask him what he's doing. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. Before that, he's going to burn up everything. And in like manner, he's also going to stretch out his hand against Judah. And against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place, and the names of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, and those who bow down on the housetops to the hosts of heaven, and those who bow down and swear to the Lord, that's Yahweh, and yet they also swear to Milcom. Milcom is the name of a national god of the Amorites. And God was very clear about, you shall have no other gods before me. God was very clear about, I'm the only god, I'm the only one, and you'll only bow yourself down and worship me. And yet they were worshiping the Baals, and they were sending their children through the fires of Molech, and they were worshiping over Milcom. All of these foreign gods had infiltrated Israel. So God's going to stop the worship, and he's going to stop the memory, the name of those gods. And those who have turned back from following Yahweh, and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. This is similar, I think, to Revelation 8.1. As Christ is opening the seals and the punishment of God is beginning to be poured out, there's silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then you see an angel stand before God and seven trumpets are given to them. And the trumpet judgments come and the bowl judgments come. And in the midst of all that, in the midst of God pouring out unbelievable terrors on the planet— There's silence in heaven, almost like the inhabitants of heaven have to just be quiet for a moment in awe and just recognize God's ability to do what he wants with his creation. And no one interrupts him. No one talks back to him. There's just absolute silence in the face of an awesome and majestic and holy God pouring out his wrath. Well, in the same way, Zephaniah says, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, and he has consecrated his guests. Well, that's the NASB reading of it. It seems that the conquering of Jerusalem and the wholesale slaughter of the Judahites in the area, God calls that a sacrifice. The King James says, Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and hath bid his guests. In other words, the implication being that God has decided which nations are going to create the sacrifice that he has intended. Again, the slaughter that is going to happen in Jerusalem is like a sacrifice of God's own people, but he has also chosen the particular nations that are going to bring about that sacrifice. That's how he has bid his guests, or consecrated, separated, chosen his guests. Then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves in foreign garments. This was a practice in Jerusalem, especially in the time of King Manasseh, the previous king to Josiah, because Manasseh was an evil king, and he did bring all kinds of foreign worship back into Israel, and the princes of the king started dressing in the fashion of the foreign kings in the foreign countries. And God is apparently upset with that, too, because he wants Israel to be a unique and a distinct people who are now making themselves look like all the nations around them. Verse 9 says, And I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. What that means is that they rush in. They rush in so quickly They leap over the threshold. Now, that may be the threshold of the temple. That's what the NASB translators think, but they've added the word temple to the text. It may also be a reference to the foreign armies that are coming in and ransacking the houses within Israel and coming in with such speed, such force in order to do their violence and their deceit that they're barely touching the threshold of the house. Verse 10, and on that day declares the Lord, there will be a sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. All he's saying is from one end of Jerusalem to another, the entire territory is going to be ransacked by these foreign armies. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar! For all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. Okay, that's fairly poetic and kind of oblique language that we're not as familiar with now. But this word mortar, that's the NASB, is also Maktesh, the city of Maktesh, in the King James rendering of it. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says that it's the residence of the hollow, And that's the idea. The New English Translation says, you who live in the market district and all the merchants will disappear and those who count money will be removed. So whether it's Maktesh, whether it's Hollow, whether it's market district, whether it's mortar, Jerome went so far as to say that the mortar word, which is the literal word, is like a play on words, like a mortar and a pestle that you would use to grind out wheat or grind out corn that God is going to bring about such a destruction that it's going to be like a grinding of these people down to powder the way that you would with a mortar or pestle. In any case, the language is fearsome. Verse 12, And it will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps. Our modern thinking would be with flashlights. In other words, God is going to look throughout Jerusalem. No one's going to be able to hide. Even if people are trying to hide in a dark place, God's going to see them because he's got the lamp. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there are pictures, paintings of Zephaniah and his lamps going through Jerusalem. And sometimes those are supposed to portray a fairly positive image, but the rest of the verse says, it will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. In other words, God won't do anything. I'm indifferent to God. I can do whatever I want to do because God doesn't do anything good. God doesn't do anything bad. And by the way, that is the attitude that is prevailing in so much of the world even today. Because God is not under any compunction to demonstrate his power and authority and presence to every living being all the time, 24 hours a day, because he can be silent for centuries at a time, human beings have a tendency to think, well then, God doesn't care. I've never seen God do anything, anything good, anything bad. That indifference is what God is going to search out and punish moreover their wealth will become plunder and their houses desolate yes they will build houses but not inhabit them and plant vineyards but not drink their wine verse 14 near is the great day of the lord and at this point zephaniah seems to be returning to the concept of the final conflagration the destruction of everything He's still going to describe the destruction of Jerusalem in the early going here in his description of what it's going to be like, but then he's going to make the leap again to the end of time. So again, he's using the destruction of Jerusalem as a microcosm of the end of the world and God's wrath, which is the macrocosm. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpets and a battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. And I will bring distress on men, so that they walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood will be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath, and All the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, that's chapter one. Starts with the final conflagration. In the middle, it focuses on the destruction of Jerusalem, the coming Babylonian captivity, and by the end of the chapter, Zephaniah has returned to the idea of the fire of God's jealousy making a complete end of all mankind. Now, at the beginning of chapter 2, Zephaniah introduces the remnant concept, that there are some good and some humble people who have carried out the ordinance of God and who seek righteousness. Righteousness. And God is going to keep them. God is going to protect them. He's going to hide them from the Lord's anger. So this is the remnant concept. And then Zephaniah is going to turn his attention to the surrounding cities and nations around Jerusalem. But first, the remnant. Chapter 2, verse 1. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation, without shame. Before the decree takes effect, that's the day of the Lord decree, the day passes like the chaff. When you separate the wheat from the chaff, you would throw it in the air. The wind would carry away the chaff. The heavier wheat would fall to the ground. He's saying the day is going to happen so suddenly, so quickly, that it's going to be like the chaff passing. The day passes like the chaff, before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you. So time is going to move quickly. And then the day of the Lord is going to be upon you, knowing that it's coming quickly, knowing that time is short. Verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who have carried out His ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Oh, well, this is a great eschatological reality. God is going to sustain Israel through the punishment, through the times of troubles and trials. And we also know, when we get into the New Testament, that God is going to preserve his church. I contend that he's going to do it by taking the church off the planet prior to the day of the Lord occurring, prior to the tribulation of those days. But in any case, what we know is that God understands, recognizes who his people are. And those people who love and seek him, he will hide. He will keep safe when he pours out his wrath. It's all the way back here in Zephaniah, and it's carried all the way forward through the book of Revelation. God is faithful to his people. Then Zephaniah turns his attention to the surrounding areas. For Gaza will be abandoned, and Ashkelon a desolation. Ashdod will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites! The word of the Lord is against you. I find that interesting, by the way. That Zephaniah did not just say, God is against you, God's intention is against you, but he also said the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord that stands unchangeable, the word of the Lord that is absolute, that word of the Lord is against you. The same way that the word of the Lord is for his people, is for his chosen, is for his beloved. The word of the Lord is against certain people. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. And I will destroy you, so that there will be no inhabitant. So the seacoast will be pastures, with caves for shepherds and folds for flocks. And the coast will be for the remnant of the house of Judah. There's the remnant concept again. God is going to destroy the Cherethites, the Canaanites, the land of the Philistines. He's going to destroy all those people, make the seacoast a pasture, and then he's going to give it to the remnant of Judah. Again, you see another example of God's faithfulness to his people Israel even though he's going to punish Israel even though he's going to punish Judah he is ultimately going to give all the surrounding territory and land to Israel and remember again that the Abrahamic covenant does not just include the sliver of land that we currently call Israel the Abrahamic covenant goes all the way out into the eastern country and all the way south to the Nile River and north to the Euphrates. It's a large landmass that God has promised ultimately to Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the coast will be for the remnant of the house of Judah, and they will pasture on it. In the houses of Ashkelon, they will lay down at evening For the Lord their God will care for them. Just as he has punished them, he will care for them. But Zephaniah will come back to that in chapter 3. Verse 8, I have heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon. By the way, Moab, Ammon, and Edom are the very places that the remnant of Israel is told to run. Those places are identified by Daniel as the areas that the Antichrist is not going to ultimately get to. And so Jesus reminds the children of Israel, those who are living in Judah, that when they see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, then they're going to flee into the wilderness And if they check Daniel, he'll tell them where? To Moab, to Ammon, to Edom. I have heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon, with which they have taunted my people. They're under God's punishment, the Israelites are, the Judahites are. They're under his punishment, and yet God defends them and calls them my people. They have reviled, they have taunted against my people and become arrogant against my people's territory. They've become arrogant against Israel. Therefore, verse 9, therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah a place possessed by nettles and salt pits, nothing's going to grow there, full of weeds and salty ground doesn't produce fruit, and it will be a perpetual desolation, the remnant of my people will plunder them, and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. Okay, that's the place that Daniel said to go. That's the place that Jesus brought up to the people who were living in Judah when the tribulation finally comes and they see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple, just like Daniel said he would. Then they're to flee into the wilderness. Daniel says into Moab, into Ammon, into Edom, and here's the promise through Zephaniah, that the remnant of God's people will plunder them and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. Verse 10, this they will have in return for their pride. He's talking about the destruction of these cities. It's going to come about because of their pride, because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of the Lord of hosts. So Israel, even as they're punished, even as they're scattered, even as they're in the Assyrian captivity, even as God is bringing the Babylonian captivity, God still identifies himself as the God of Israel. He still says that these people are the people of the Lord of hosts. He still calls them my people, and he's still going to punish the surrounding nations for the way they are haughty against his people. Verse 11, The Lord will be terrifying to them, for he will starve all the gods of the earth, and all the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him, everyone from his own place. You also, O Ethiopians, now he's going down into Egypt, into Africa, into Ethiopia. You also, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. Now, at the moment that Zephaniah is saying this, very much like Nahum, Assyria seemed impregnable, unconquerable, undefeatable. And yet the prophets are all saying that Assyria is going to be destroyed. And he will make Nineveh a desolation. Parched like the wilderness, and flocks will lie down in her midst, all beasts which reign in herds, both the pelican and the hedgehog, will lodge in the tops of her pillars, birds will sing in her windows, desolation will be on her threshold, for he has laid bare the cedar work. What that means is the same way that when we build a house or we build any structure these days, we start out with a wooden frame. Then you brick it up, then you put siding, anything else on it, but it starts at the woodwork. And the good homes were built on cedar wood, like the cedars of Lebanon. And God is going to lay them into such desolation that the cedars that they're founded on, that they're laid on, are going to be exposed. Now, by the way, that happened. That's part of history. Assyria was defeated by the Babylonians. And today, there is no great kingdom coming out of an area of Nineveh. There is no Assyrian empire. The things that Zephaniah predicted came true because it is the word of God. Verse 15 of chapter 2 finishes chapter 2 by saying, This is the exultant city, which dwells securely, who says in her heart, I am, and there is none besides me. That's a statement that only God can make. Only God can say, I am, because I am. Only God and Christ can use the proper name, I am. And only they can say, there's no other but me. But Assyria had become So haughty, so proud, so arrogant that they would say, I am, I exist, which is another way of saying, I will always exist into perpetuity. I'm Assyria. You can't conquer me. And they said, there is no one besides me. There's no other nation. There's no other kingdom that can come up against me because after all, I'm Assyria. How she has become a desolation, a resting place for beasts. Everyone who passes by her will hiss and wave his hand in contempt. That's the end of chapter 2. Beginning at chapter 3, Zephaniah turns his attention back to Jerusalem, the erring people, the place that God has chosen to place his name the holy city, and yet the people have so rebelled and chased their foreign gods and taken on so many foreign aspects of their life that God is now going to decry them. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. She heeded no voice, she accepted no instruction, She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law the lord is righteous within her he will do no injustice every morning he brings his justice to light he does not fail but the unjust knows no shame i can't help but point out that that's still how humans are in their arrogance in their pride in their boastfulness they know no shame. God is in their midst. God is always righteous. God is not unjust. God always does justice and brings justice to light. He doesn't fail. If he calls people, he keeps those people. But if he predicts violence, then he's going to bring about the violence. But the unjust— Despite all that, despite the good and the bad that they think God does neither, despite all that, despite the evidence, human beings have no shame. They act the way they act, they think the things they think, and they don't understand their standing before God, that they are sinful, that they are corrupt, that they are depraved, and that God is righteous and holy always. So verse 6, I have cut off nations, their corner towers are in ruins, I have made their streets desolate, with no one passing by, their cities are laid waste, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will revere me, accept instruction so her dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed concerning her. But they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to the prey. That's just chilling. God said to Israel, here's my law, accept my instruction, revere me. And if you do that, then your dwelling's not going to be cut off. And yet, because they were eager to corrupt themselves in all their deeds, in the things that they thought, in the way that they acted, in the ways that they behaved themselves individually and as a society, God reaches the point where he says, therefore, wait for me. That's God's threat. I'm coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to the prey. Indeed, my decision is to gather the nation, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. So here again, we see that what's happening with Israel. God's relationship with Israel affects the whole rest of the planet. The punishment starts with Judah, starts with Israel, but then it reaches out to all the nations of the earth. When God is going to gather All the kings, all of the nations, all of the peoples, he's going to gather them together and assemble them so that he can pour out his indignation. By the way, this is also something that's talked about in the book of Revelation, that God is going to send out spirits, demonic spirits, who are going to gather the kings of the earth to the valley of Megiddo. That's what's called the Armageddon. The final war, the final conflagration, when the kings of the earth gather together to do battle ultimately with Christ, when the blood flows to the bridles of the horses, when the king comes back with the two-edged sword out of his mouth and he judges the nations of the earth. This is consistent language, whether New Testament, whether Revelation, whether Zephaniah back here, the day of the Lord is described as a time of punishment, not only on Israel, not only on Jerusalem, but on all the nations as a result. And then starting at verse 9, God says that he's going to punish nations, but to the peoples, and I believe he's talking about his chosen people, which you'll see by what he describes, to those particular people, he's going to give purified lips which makes me think of Isaiah saying, Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And then an angel comes down with tongs, takes a coal from the fire, and then touches his lips and says, See, this has touched your lips. And then Isaiah is able to talk to God. So we humans, in all of our impurity, in all of our wretchedness, in our depravity, Even our tongues, even our lips are unclean. We don't have any right to come before a truly holy, pure, separate God and start spewing our filth at Him. We need an intercessor like the Holy Spirit who receives our prayers and cleans them up and takes them to God so that they become a sweet odor before God. Here's Zephaniah saying that God himself is going to give these people purified lips because they need to be separated. They need to be made holy. They need to be purified to be his kingdom nation. For then I will give to the peoples purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. I can't help it. Zephaniah sounds very Calvinistic at this point. He sounds very much like what we believe, what we preach. He is saying that people in and of themselves simply cannot come to God and call on his name. First, their lips have to be purified. God has to do something for people in order for people to respond positively to God. Human beings left to themselves. Will not call on God. It will take God purifying them, separating them, purifying them in order for them to call on God in the very first place. The relationship starts when God does something for people, not when people do something for God, not when people choose God, not when people make God Lord and Savior. That's not anywhere in the Bible. The Bible says over and over again that it has to be God who does something for people to start the relationship between them. For I will give the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve Him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers My dispersed ones. Okay, at the time that Zephaniah is writing, there is only one dispersed group that can be called the people of God, and that's Israel. That's the northern ten tribes who have been taken into the Assyrian captivity and then ultimately are going to become scattered. And to this day, they remain scattered. But they're not unknown to God. He knows where they all are, and he's going to gather them again, and he's going to establish the 12 tribes of Israel again. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. In that day, you will feel no shame because of your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. It's very, very common to hear theologians speculate that God is done with Israel, that national Israel, the race of people who descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you hear that God is done with them, and then in order to help God save face, they say that the new Israel, or the spiritual Israel, language you don't find anywhere in the Bible, has become the the church. The church is the new or the spiritual Israel, but again, you find that nowhere in the Bible. And when people talk about God being done with the national Israel, they always point at the same thing, Israel's rebellion. Because Israel didn't keep the covenant that Moses made on Mount Sinai with the people of Israel, because they broke that conditional covenant, God is going to punish them just like he promised he would. But before that, God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that would carry on in perpetuity, and that covenant God never, ever breaks. And so he sends his son, who is called specifically the Redeemer of Israel, and Zephaniah can say that in that day, you will feel no shame because of your deeds, by which you have rebelled against me. It's true that Israel has rebelled, but it is equally true that God is going to be gracious to them, going to call them to himself, and going to keep every promise that he's made to these people. We're about to read that promise. For then I will remove from your midst your proud exalting ones, And you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. Now, here comes the promises about the remnant of Judah, about the remnant of Israel, and the promises of reestablishment after they've gone through all these scatterings, all these punishments, all these deportations, all these incursions, all these enemies. God is ultimately going to restore Israel. Verse 12, But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. For they shall feed and lie down, and no one shall make them tremble we have to say that's not true yet. That hasn't happened anywhere in Israel's history. It hasn't happened up till this moment. And yet God promises that someday Israel is going to be surrounded by peace and no one is going to make them tremble. Verse 14, shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Now, there are commentators who say that that is a prophecy of Jesus coming and being in the midst of the Judahites but I don't think that's all there is to it. I think this is talking about the ultimate end, the kingdom, when Jesus, the greater son of David, is going to rule from David's throne in Jerusalem and rule over the collective 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, last night, someone brought up the 144,000. In the book of Revelation, the 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel are mentioned because God is collecting the 12 tribes of Israel, collecting his remnant again to build his kingdom. And then at the end of Revelation, when New Jerusalem comes down, it is built on the foundation of the 12 apostles, but the 12 gates of New Jerusalem have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's impossible to say is the church in any significant way. In fact, if you are going to say that the church is the new Israel and you're going to be consistent, then you also have to show where God ever scattered the church, ever punished the church, ever left the church like an erring wife so that he could regather them at the end of time. That's simply not how the church is described in the Bible. There are simply no parallels here. When God talks about Israel, he knows what he's saying. He's talking about being in the midst of Israel. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts They come from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I am going to deal at that time with your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. They will be famous in all the earth. That hasn't happened yet. But God's going to say it a second time, last verse, verse 20, at that time, I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. The same way that God has dispersed Israel, the same way that as of 70 AD, Judah has been dispersed, God's promise is, I am going to gather you together. I am going to bring you in again. At that time, I will bring you in, even at that time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Now, at this moment, and reaching all the way back to the early days of national Israel, Israel has been a reproach among mankind. Various nations have gone to war against Israel, and even to this very moment, there are people saying they will blow Israel off the map. And yet the promise is that they will have such renown and such praise that the peoples of the earth will praise them in their fame. And God's going to do this. He's going to restore the fortunes before the very eyes of Israel and before the eyes of all the nations. Now, that's what Zephaniah predicts. Zephaniah says this at a time when the northern ten tribes are scattered, when Judah is about to go into the Babylonian captivity, and yet he says exactly what all of the prophets of Israel say, which is that God is going to punish Israel for a time, and then he's going to restore Israel because he's faithful. And as I have said way too many times, that's exactly how you want God to be. Because if God could make these kinds of promises to his chosen elect people and then change his mind, well, then you have no confidence at all that the God who has promised to save you won't change his mind later When he sees something about you, something in you, that makes him change his ways, turn his back on you, and condemn you forever. A consistent God makes promises and keeps them. And that is the consistency of God that is demonstrated all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So there it is. That's Zephaniah. The next time we're together, we'll talk about Habakkuk or Habakkuk. Choose a pronunciation. And then we will return to 2 Kings right at the point of King Josiah, and you will see the reforms that he makes to Israel and the ways that God blesses him. But then you're going to see Jerusalem continue in their rebellion until God brings the Babylonians down on them. And then we're going to see the Medo-Persians conquer Babylon, and then the the Greeks under Alexander the Great are going to conquer all of the Middle East. And then, according to Daniel, it's not the posterity of Alexander the Great that's going to receive his kingdom. It's going to go to four of his generals. And then Daniel gets real specific and says that the king of the north and the king of the south, that's the Ptolemaic king. And the Seleucid portion of the Alexandrian Empire, the northern and southern kings, are going to go through a whole succession of wars that are going to culminate in a really evil person, Antiochus Epiphanes. And that takes us into the time of the Maccabees. That takes us into the silent intertestamental period. And then, finally, the New Testament comes about and Christ comes on the scene. So that's coming attractions. There's plenty more to cover as we go through Second Kings and the history of Israel. And since there's nobody here but me and my cats, and since they don't know how to say see you next time, I'll say goodbye to the internet congregation until this Sunday. I hope you enjoyed this study, and I hope now you know where Zephaniah fits in the history of Israel and the succession